This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guide along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With a distant light pierces the mist, we build a setting faction based on the philosophy of social construction. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss how material and other media can inspire our invisible sun games. In this segment, we will discuss the philosophy of social construction and how it can serve as the basis for a faction in Invisible Sun. It's worth a a quick review uh, based on a segment we had many, many episodes ago uh, on uh, kind of philosophy uh, and how they can serve as the basis for uh, different elements of Invisible Sun. Uh, uh, To start with a a key distinction in philosophy, uh, there's a kind of subfield of philosophy called ontology. This is arguments about what uh, the theory of what is real and what it means to be. That is the, the actual nature of reality and things that we call real. Did it's we often, talk about ontology on an episode? Yeah, I think it's, it's come up several times, but I, I'm pretty sure okay. we discussed it in, in more detail when we talked about uh, Plato's cave, uh, which sure. I should probably look up very quickly. In I'll our find notes. It, but um, <laughs> ontology, was that like the theory of forms? Or the Was that what that was? Uh, the theory of forms is a particular ontology. Okay. Uh, and it, and uh, which is a, a nice uh, segue in the theory of forms, formalism or Platonism, depending you know which term you want to use at any particular time. Uh, what we see around us isn't necessarily what is real. Instead, what we see is a reflection of what Plato called forms, uh, which are the true, essential, and real things in the world. So while we may see a tree. It is just a tree, but what is real is the idea of a tree, which is so perfect it has never been expressed in our world, and all trees in the world are simply a reflection of the form of tree. And so that is an ontology because it talks about what is real and what is not real. That is, the things that we are around us that we observe um, are just reflections of the real and are not not real in and of themselves. That's – uh, and it's associated with a kind of quick phrase, um, essence precedes existence. That is, the idea of tree in this particular ontology precedes the realization of a uh, observable uh, tree. So the essence, the thought, the idea of tree precedes existence, which is the raw sensed uh, presence of a tree. So let me see if I'm understanding this. A tree doesn't really exist until we understand the idea of there being a tree. Well, the, the tree, the form of tree, the the idea, and the only important mm-hmm. and real part of tree uh, has existed from before anyone ever sensed it. So that okay. when people named something a tree, what they were doing is they were discovering a pre-existing thought form. Is okay. 
one sort of extreme interpretation of this. Uh, so in uh, episode 13, uh, when we talked about Plato's cave and formalism, uh, we kind of gamified this as a group who adhered to a similar philosophy uh, that there were essences of all objects in the world and that they were trying to keep uh, or guard uh, these various forms. So they were looking for the perfect tree and the perfect dog and the perfect desk uh, and to find the perfect form of these concepts and uh, protect them from degradation, uh, destruction or the like. So that, that works pretty well for things that are natural. But when you come to like a desk or say, I don't know, an iPhone, do those things exist before they've been formally discovered? I, th I think most Platonists would say yes, because they exist as a an idea before they exist mm -hmm. as a reality, because the, disc, the desk has to be built. So it existed as an idea before it was ever built. Okay. I mean, it, it kind of makes some sense. It's like, uh, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but uh, <laughs> like, oh, the I, like when you build a desk, when the first person who built a desk builds that desk, what they're saying is that idea was floating out there and somebody just need to coalesce it and make it take shape. Yes. Okay. And then you can embark into even after the first desk is ever built, one could have a debate among many carpenters saying, uh, well, what does it mean to be a desk? How, what is this thing that is a desk? What you have built is not necessarily the perfect desk, because we will talk about what separates a desk from a table and then use those characteristics to define what is actually the ideal desk, uh, even if oh. they have never seen an ideal desk. Is this going to de devolve into a conversation about like, is a hot dog a sandwich? Um, it could, but we Let's... will try to avoid that. <laughs> I have other cliche uh, Zen cones uh, later. Great. Uh, so that's, again, just a review from episode 13. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about that a bit because it serves as almost the, the comparison, uh, though I hesitate to say opposite, of the philosophy I want to use today as a basis for designing a faction. That is mm -hmm. social construction theory. So it's kind of the opposite of Platonism. Uh, I do want to note that the theories that I'll talk about, uh, and especially uh, social construction theory and that, that, that language, is only one of many, many theories that one can take as strongly opposed to Platonism. This is not the opposite. This is a counterpart, a contrasting theory. Uh, so there's many, many more. Uh, and within social construction, there's just dozens of different variations on it now. So I'm, I'm going to be talking at a very simplistic level about social construction theory. Ah, uh, thank uh, you. Which I think, yeah, let's say more people will probably <laughs> thank me for than criticize. Yeah, I'm, I'm thanking you. Yeah. And I'm, so I'm building on some of the language that's been popularized from uh, two writers, Berger and Luckman. I believe their book was published in 1966 called The Social Construction of Reality. And what they do is they say they can almost can reverse that simple statement and say that, no, no, existence precedes essence, that the only way we understand desks is by seeing desks and that we socially you know, discuss what makes a desk. We build models of desks based on these conversations, but nothing uh, that idea of desk cannot be separated from the social processes by which we define what a desk is and how it's different from a table. Uh, this makes me think that uh, there's a, a pretty sharp contrast between 
this social constructionist idea, which sounds more like uh, humans at the center of this sort of process and Platonism, which sounds more divine in its generation of ideas and forms. Absolutely correct. Hey, I did um, it. So, yes. So Platonism is popular among philosophers, uh, ethicists, people mm -hmm. um, who like to think of this as a fallen world, that there is a, a, a kind of zone or world of perfection, whether it is made by, populated by, or is consists of a god. Okay. Uh, that it, that is perfection, and that we may see imperfection in our world around us, but there is this world of perfection, and that the most important kind of conversations, the most important thoughts, are thoughts about this perfection. In the 1960s, again, this is not the first, nor the last, nor the only uh, counter argument. Berger and Luckman were uh, kind of at their core are saying. Um, it is not worth arguing about whether there's some perfect world we can never observe can, and probably never know about. Uh, but instead, uh, what is important is with, what we might call meaning rather than just existence. And that meanings are things that are held by people in their minds. Mm -hmm. So we see a desk, but we also have meaning behind a desk. We, we have ideas of what desks are used for what shapes they take and the like. And that what's important for our reality and, and for thinking uh, humans uh, is the meaning that we attribute to various objects, processes, and the like around us. So we should really be talking about the reality of meanings rather than the reality of objects because mere objects really aren't all that interesting. Okay. Um, again, to get back to one of those cliches, uh, you know, does a tree fall in a forest if no one hears it? For a Platonist, well, uh, it it you know it falls or does not fall uh, based upon this world of forms that we never observe anyway. So observation is more or less unrelated to the, sta the, the status of something as real or unreal. Whereas for Berger and Luckman, if no one saw it and no one attributed meaning to the falling of that tree, then it does not exist in any uh, useful way or any philosophically important way. Okay. Uh, it also means that sh when they say shaping reality. Uh, they're not talking about using bulldozers and concrete to build buildings. Uh, when, when one shapes or changes reality based upon social construction, it's about persuading other people of and creating shared meaning. So if we bring that back to the desk idea, like we all agree that desks are used for writing on, and that's kind of how we're shaping the reality around desks. Right. Or we culturally uh, say it is inappropriate to sit on a desk. It is appropriate to sit on a chair. Sure. And that's not, a, that's not a property of the, it's not necessarily a physical property of the desk or the chair, but it's a, it's meaning that we have defined into the object. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality uh, that we've created. Right. Okay. So it is a socially constructed reality, which they, they would say are in some ways the most important. Uh, the, you, you, I'm not sure how they would define important, but they might say the most important aspect of reality are the socially constructed ones. Well, wouldn't they define the importance by, you know, discussing it and figuring out like <laughs> what actually is important about a chair? Right. And, and this is where the theory, like pretty much all philosophical, philosophical theories, becomes sort of turtles all the way down. Mm -hmm. um, it, it becomes either okay. re recursive um, or it's simply groundless, depending upon whether you like it or you don't like it. Okay. 
Uh, it's worth pointing out that there's, there's some you know, uh, snarky uh, counter arguments to social construction that are based upon a misunderstanding of it. Uh, one, I, I, at least it's very clear and kind of funny uh, from Dinesh D'Souza, who's a he's now considers himself a, a, a filmmaker. He was a conservative uh, sort of pundit. Uh, I, he still shows up on Fox News, so I think Wait, it's fair to still call him pardoned. a conservative pundit uh, recently uh, pardoned by President Trump. Don't go down the rabbit hole trying to find out who Dinesh D'Souza is. But let's just say he's a conservative uh, who does engage in big philosophical debates occasionally uh, and is a good enough writer that has little memorable nuggets like this. Uh, I, and this is in the, I think this is in the era before tweets, but this sounds a lot like a tweet. Hmm. He says, um, show me a social construction, uh, show, show me a social construction theorist on a plane and I will show you a hypocrite at 30,000 feet. Hashtag Platonism. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, though I'm not sure what the form of airplane is. So I don't know if he would necessarily go that way. What, what he was trying to say in a sort of snarky but memorable way was that uh, there are raw material facts in our world that empower us to do things like fly in an mm-hmm. airplane and that the, the plane doesn't fly because we've been tricked into believing it flies. The plane flies because of physical properties of objects that exist, whether we believe them or not. So one of the, you know, and one of the popular phrases in science is uh, one of the great things about science is it is true whether you believe it or not. <laughs> and um, so D'Souza would say it's, it's ridiculous to say that reality is based on social construction because no matter how many of us don't believe planes will fly, it will fly. And if someone really believed that everything depends upon on, on consensus, uh, then uh, they really shouldn't be getting on airplanes or conducting any sort of risky activity <laughs> where the consensus may change and they may f- suddenly be plummeting out of the air because uh, the power of flight has been socially constructed away or something like that. Yeah, I guess um, I wasn't looking at the um, consensus as defining the actual physical function of something. And your More instincts are stronger. <laughs> what? Yeah, those instincts are stronger than the nuance of D'Souza's uh, argument. Yeah, you his argument correct. is social construction. It sounds like it's more of a um, societal understanding of what something, I guess, means, not what it's physically capable of. Right. So Berger and Luckman, again, what they're, they're talking about meaning rather than sort of raw material existence okay. uh, for the most part. And, and they would say raw material existence isn't very interesting because we have to socially construct the appropriateness of flying, the concept of flying, and all of these things before we ever build a plane. Right. And so they're not saying that if we think really hard, we can you know, ground every plane on, uh, on Earth uh, or forget how to fly uh, or build airplanes. What they're saying is what's important is not uh, airflow. What's important is the meanings we attribute to flying. And how it you know ca- it creates and, and recreates different social processes and the like. So again, mm-hmm. it's it's a little snarky to say, well, you're not really socially constructing reality because you know that that plane's going to fly for real, regardless, because it's based upon the properties of, of airflow and uh, things like that that are independent of observation. But uh, what Berger and Luckman would say is that may be true, but the the important and, and interesting conversation is about the meanings of these objects. And so that has a variety of implications. It opens up new conversations about 
types of objects where you can kind of come back to Dinesh D'Souza and say, if the only thing that's interesting is, is airflow and the material existence of planes, that doesn't leave this sort of materialism does not re- leave much room for conversations about, say, justice. Whereas social construction, because it, it prioritizes meaning, uh, in some sense, creates a balanced playfield uh, of conversation between the meaning of desk, the meaning of airplane, and the meaning of justice and the meaning of equality. Because these are all meanings that are held in observers and conversers' brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so their, their status of, in terms of reality is parallel. Uh, and it, so it, it allows us to philosophically engage these sorts of concepts in, with an equal status uh, rather than just having to say, well, justice may or may not exist, but it's very different than, uh, you know, the, the material existence of the, of the plane itself. Yeah. I can, I can kind of grok that. I think, I think, and getting into the debate in our world is one thing. It's particularly interesting, um, in a world like invisible sun, where is that what our podcast is about? It eventually we get back to that. Uh, yes. (laughs) So, uh, what the, the game itself, maybe think of, social construction theory, uh, because in Invisible Sun, magic is the foundation of the world. And there are competing understandings of what magic is and how to practice it. We have this in the form of the orders, which are the mecha- have different mechanics for engaging magic. Uh, but it's not a, a large jump from there to suggest there's probably fundamental disagreements about the very nature of magic. Weavers have a very different understanding of the nature of magic uh, than do Vance's. And so that, you know, so that, that made me think, oh, well, we can populate the world in some sense, uh, inspired by our gray, boring worlds, philosophical traditions. Uh, and if we, you know, when we have different traditions about what reality is, we could translate those into different traditions of what magic is mm-hmm. to gamify uh, these, philo- these philosophies for Invisible Sun. So I wanted to spend the rest of the of the segment talking about how to gamify social construction in the way that we gamified Platonism uh, with the keepers of the form. Cool. So I propose uh, a group called the Whisperers at the River. Uh, I, I wanted to get some, some of the connotations I wanted to bring with social construction theory was this notion of consensus building. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like conspiracies. So I want it to be a very quiet sort of consensus building, a subtle uh, sort of consensus building. So I thought Whisperers was appropriate. Um, they're trying to reshape the flow of magic. So River seemed good. But of course, feel free to name this whatever you want to name it. I like it. But it's a, it's a group who sees magic as based on a consensus understanding of the emanations of the invisible sun. So it's not that the sun would have the same effect regardless of how it's observed or understood, but instead the Vizlay's understanding of magic shapes that magic. Which is why the orders are able to harness it in the ways that they do? The Yes. So the current set of orders is based upon a consensus understanding of how magic works. But I think the whisperers would argue uh, there are an infinite number of potential orders, mm-hmm. each based on a different understanding of magic that could exist if uh, there was a consensus around the efficacy of that different approach to magic. Okay. Uh, before we get too far into this, I mean, these whisperers, would these be a group of Vizlay? Would they be part of an order? Or are these people trying to put together a new order? It could be any of the above. Okay. So Except I, I, apostates. I don't, I mean, it sounds like something they're doing that apostates would be kind of down with, except the idea of getting consensus and 
you know, group, a group to work together. Well, I, I think that uh, a po- uh, there could very well be an, a, a kind of a campaign based with, with the Whisperers of the River being a protagonist group that are working underground to question the nature of power and the control of the dominant houses. Mm-hmm. So if you're all apostates, you're like magic should be free and you have basically limited what magic can be by channeling it into these particular houses, uh, then what we need to do is is change the way we think of magic and free it from these confines. Uh, I think that could be a, a good kind of protagonist campaign using uh, a group like this and uh, would largely be apostates. Yeah, okay. That uh, makes sense. But of course, you could also imagine them as an, antag- an antagonist group. Oh, very much so. Uh, this is a <laughs> – yeah, if, whether actually you're apostates or members of other uh, orders, then someone who's trying to run around and reshape the nature of magic – uh, is very dangerous. And you can imagine a group, this is the more sinister implication of whisperers at the river, that are trying to reshape the very suns themselves, maybe redefine the suns, or add new suns, or maybe what they would say, rediscover suns uh, that have been locked out by the current contempt- you know, the current understanding of magic. Uh, we don't know much about the setting. Uh, we do know that you know there was this big war, in one's home campaign, one can even imagine the war was over uh, some sort of fundamental question of magic. So maybe the whispers of the river are trying to recover the types of magic that were kind of lost and buried uh, by the war, maybe. And and th- th- which plays into this notion that even in the relatively short term and in the game, uh, you can transform reality. Uh, by changing how people understand that reality. Uh, yeah, that would be an interesting way to take it. Uh, I guess the suns function the way they do. They represent what they do because generally that's what, that's what people agree to. Right. Or maybe they have agreed to after the war mm-hmm. or something along those lines. Okay. We're, we're playing with a setting we know very little about. <laughs> uh, but of course, it's a game we can take any direction we want. Uh, but yeah, and whether it's the war or some much older uh, conflict, the Whisperers may be trying to restore a previous order, or they may be trying to make a new order. Uh, they might say that the kind of thematic associations of the Suns are themselves limiting, and that they uh, fail to appreciate a particularly important part of reality. Um, uh, nothing comes to mind on you know, that's missing from the suns right now. But imagine if there was a you know if they were adding another sun, let's say based on uh, the theme of um, well knowledge, sure, or something like that. Well, well, what do we have for the suns right now? We have uh, silver, which is creation, creation, start uh, like new beginnings. You have green, which is is it life or is it mm, like nature i would say life and growth right growth i think is better yeah uh then we have uh what's the next one blue yep a dream and yeah dreams is it just dreams i guess it's that's the big one for it uh then we have gray which is falsehood well we skipped indigo indigo comes next i thought i thought it was indigo then gray Anyway, oh, man, we, we have are, both. We're, 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 we've got a podcast and we can't remember this. <laughs> well, we, we don't have them physically in front of us right now. Yeah. They're stuck in California. Indigo is reality um, and truth. Uh, gray is um, false. 
Falseness. Yeah, false truth. True. Yeah. Uh, then there's the, the death from the pale yeah, sun. Pale. Red is you know, destruction and chaos. Yes. Uh, and then uh, cre- uh, creation with the gold sun. Not, not creation, that's, but uh, endings. Endings. Yeah. Is that yeah, all? It's, I it's, feel it's, like it's, we missed one. Uh, I I was not keeping track, so we'll say that's many of them. Uh, well, and then there's the <laughs> invisible sun, which represents all of them and magic. Right. So if if there was a theme we wanted to play with um, that wasn't really reflected in one of the suns, uh, or wasn't direct wasn't uh, uh, reflected primarily uh, in one of the suns. So you were saying knowledge. Uh, they might. Let's say knowledge. knowledge. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if that fits, but it, it does for this exercise. Yes. Uh, they they might say, well, we we want the sun of knowledge. They might want to redefine. Uh, they might say knowledge is the height of all creation, uh, and therefore the gold sun should be redefined as a sun of knowledge. And they're going to do that uh, through kind of this whisper campaign, through or, or whatever it would take to to transform people's understanding um, of of uh, knowledge and of uh, of endings. And uh, that's probably not something that you know, that will probably be traumatic for anyone on the path of suns if one of the suns is dramatically redefined. Uh, or they could say, hey, we just need another sun. So what we're going to do is we're going to create a new sun and divert the path of suns so it goes through this new sun uh, of knowledge. And again, that would be traumatic for people following the, uh, the path of suns. And so that sets them up as an antagonistic group, sort of a, a cataclysmic or... or uh, you know, a cataclysmic group that's trying to change the world uh, in order to achieve what they think is a better world, but destroys the current world uh, in the process. It sounds like they would be uh, at odds with reality. Yes, with just about all of reality. But their goal will be to change how people think of reality. I guess if you were to change the definition of the suns and change reality, I mean, that would have a huge impact on Indigo, wouldn't it? It very well may, uh, and, and you know it, it would probably involve direct sort of connections with the invisible sun itself. Mm-hmm. Whether you're drawing the material for this new world out of the invisible sun, or you're maybe forging um, you know a bridge between the invisible sun and this new place, uh, yeah, it, it could cause upheaval in a variety of locations, which sets them up as a, a convenient antagonist group, but not an antagonist group that just wants to you know get rich by you know stealing lots of money or just likes killing people because that's what monsters and dungeons do um, but instead has a purpose and their purpose is to redefine our understanding of the world uh in order to uh, to embrace this whatever the concept is they they are seeking to embrace whether it's uh, knowledge or uh, authority or uh, any number of possible concepts that one might see as underrepresented in the path of suns in with its current associated themes. It would also be very easy to, I guess, justify their actions because, Hey, we're going through, you know, some major upheaval. There's going to be a lot of damage. People are going to get lost on the path of suns as we reshape it. But once it's all over and done, we're going to have a new sun. We're going to have a new, uh, we're going to have a whole new reality that we can experience and go to. That's what their pamphlets say. The uh, if they are the antagonist group, uh, the orders are saying, you know, if this happens, uh, we may, you know, lose the sons we currently have. We may they may crumble 
uh, and it may be, maybe they'll argue it's this path becomes unsustainable. And as a result, we all, we all would crumble into the invisible sun for a rebirth possibly, but one that we would never see. It'd be the end of the, of the path of suns, the end of the actuality. Yeah. So maybe we would have to take up arms and, and stop this, the whispers at the river and kick off a, a, you know, a second war. Maybe. Uh, and this one might be a cold war because we are basically fighting an ideological war, maybe rather than bombing people and creating hate cysts or whatever that might be. Uh, it, you could shape your campaign in a variety of ways. I, th I do think this would be distinctive in that it wouldn't be necessarily a war where there's battle lines uh, and you have the giant army of whatever the opposed soldiers are and uh, that sort of military campaign, but instead would be a a, uh, a propaganda campaign. They're trying to convince everybody that there is this other domain of knowledge that has equal status uh, to other the existing sons, existing domains. Uh, they may be doing so also by undermining the exclusivity of the orders and saying, oh, well, magic can come in a variety of ways. And we need to think about knowledge magic or something along those lines, and whatever that might look mm -hmm. like. Uh, I can imagine almost like, a, a, you know, if they start rune casting or something like that would be very different than what we've seen so far from the orders. Um, but suddenly you have a, a, an antagonist group that has more of a, of a uh, point than just being an antagonist group because you've got to shoot somebody or you've got to magic away some opposition. Uh, and the strategies you would use to combat the threat wouldn't necessarily be marching into the dungeon, killing everything there and taking their treasure. It might be having to mount your own whisper campaign. Mm -hmm. to reinforce the legitimacy of the existing orders and the existing understanding of magic. There's a game I have not read yet uh, that I think would be interesting in this case. I, it's, it's high on my priority list. Uh, it's a campaign for Trail of Cthulhu that is set in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, it's, some, it's something like Warriors of Pen and Ink or something like that. Uh, and it's and, and part of the of that campaign is in the in the middle of this Cthulhu investigation in uh, uh, Spanish Civil War uh, era Spain. Uh, it ends up being a propaganda war between a Cthulhu or maybe it's a Hoster uh, related faction and the PCs, and they're they're fighting with pamphlets and not with uh, spells or guns or things like that. That would be an interesting one to check out. We should throw that in the notes. <laughs> I'll, I'll look it up uh, and make sure we get a link to it in the notes. Uh, it is again, it's not something I've read yet. I've only read enough to know. I really do want to read it. It's on, it's pretty high on my list right now, uh, but you can imagine, and this just seems to fit the, the tone of invisible sun. Well, mm -hmm. that you might have a session where, okay, everybody, how are we going to get a really good uh, set of posters all around Saturn to support our particular version vision of magic? Uh, and how do we stop people from putting up their uh, propaganda posters that talk about this new competing form of magic or something along those lines rather than spell slinging. Yeah. It, it, you could also do something where you infiltrate one of their, uh, one of their gatherings. Um, you know how the, <laughs> there are conventions for flat earthers now, maybe they've got that same sort of thing. Right. And since uh, given the timing of Berger and Luckman's 66 book and the use of that since then, this would be like turbo indigo hippie. Oh man. <laughs> you can take that indirect. This could be like Burning Man. This could be surreal Burning Man. That would be amazing. I mean, going to Burning Man is just surreal, isn't it? 
Right, but imagine it being pulled into indigo. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot, lot of opportunities, and this this again just, just riffs off of this particular philosophical tradition of ontology, uh, a perspective on what it means to be real. For Berger and Luckman, what it means to be real is to have meaning that is to be understood in a shared consensus way by people in participating in a culture. And that to change reality then is to change meanings and understandings, not necessarily to chop uh, some material object in half uh, or to change its shape or something like that. But the meaning is what really matters. Uh, And that fits well with what we know of Invisible Sun, uh, since magic is at the core of the setting, a lot of what we typically think of real as impermanent, like physical objects, isn't. Like bodies can be changed rather easily. Uh, and that what's really important in Invisible Sun is meaning. So this is a philosophy that touches at the heart of Invisible Sun, and not, not surprisingly provides interesting inspiration for factions uh, or even character motivations uh, in the game. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, It really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, Tell a friend about incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.